Reading this morning will be from 1 Samuel 18. 1 Samuel 18, and I'll read 1 through 9. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. And Saul took him that day, and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and he prospered and Saul set him over the men of war. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. And when the women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands, then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David tens of thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Let's pray. Father, um, we look to you, God, to instruct our hearts and lead us to yourself, to the Lord Jesus, in righteousness and truth and purity. That our hearts would be yours, God, sanctified unto Christ. And that Jesus would be exalted. And so we ask, God, that you would be blessed and that we would be ministered to and taught of you as you would have during this time. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Some people love roller coasters. I am not one of them. I can deal with the back and forth and even the spins, it's the falling out of space straight down that, that, that gets me. Um, Patsy's just the opposite. She loves that sensation of falling and you know, losing her stomach and leaving it on top of the roller coaster somewhere. But she can't handle the back and forth. She throws up over everybody. But life is um, full of ups and downs doesn't always go the way that we think that it should. And sometimes it's most perplexing for us as we yield to the Lord and seek God and want to respond to Him. We think it ought to be a little smoother than what it is. And there shouldn't be the troubles. There ought to only be the Jonathans in our life like David has in his. And we praise God for Jonathans. Of all the men and women in the Bible, Jonathan stands out head and shoulders above all the others. There's really no blemish on his record in the Bible. He is an incredible, selfless, humble man of faith. But David didn't just have Jonathan's in his life. He also had Saul's. So he had friends and he had enemies. There is a verse in the Bible that says, When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Saul never made peace with David. 
There's another verse that says, Woe to you when all men think well of you. How do you put those two things together? When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. But woe to you when all men think well of you. Proverbs where that first verse is found, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Those are not typically absolute statements. They're generalities. But there are always those that it is not possible to make peace with. That's why Romans 12 will say, insofar as it is possible, live at peace with all men. It's not always possible. The scripture tells us that the flesh wars against the spirit. And so it shouldn't surprise us when we walk according to the Spirit that we will create enemies as well as friends. Some will be lifelong friends that would give their lives for you for no reason other than they love Jesus and you love Jesus. And others will hate the ground that you stand on. And they can't even explain why they hate you like they do. I remember... When I think of hatred, I think of two roommates in college, and the one hated the other. And as a RA, I had to go to them and, and talk to them individually to find out what the problem was. And the one who was being hated said, I don't know what the problem is. My roommate has not talked to me in weeks. It's been six weeks since my roommate has said a word to me. So I went to his roommate. How are things going? Oh, great. Really? Everybody's great? Oh, yeah, man. So what about things with your roommate? Ah, oh, great. So when was the last time you talked to him? Oh, it's been a long time. Weeks. And I go, why? You don't know, I hate him. <laughs> but things are great. <laughs> it's right where he wants it to be. He hates him. Why do you hate him? Because he's stinking smart. He never has to study. And I study as hard as I can, and that guy doesn't even need to study, and he makes straight A's of the 4.0 student. And I hate it, and I hate him. There is nothing that roommate did to cause that. And there's nothing he's going to be able to do to change it. So David kills a giant, and he creates friends, and he creates enemies. He walked on the battlefield trusting God. Had no idea what the consequences would be, but he knew that God would kill that giant. Didn't know that that day he would make one of the best friends of his whole life. And would also make the biggest enemy of his whole life. So it says that when Saul called David in after killing Goliath, and David explained he answered himself, answered to Saul all the questions that Saul asked. And Jonathan was standing there listening to it. Jonathan was impressed. And Jonathan saw a young man and, and heard a young man whose heart was the same as his own. And he loved him like himself. And then the amazing thing here, verse 3, I mean, right from the get-go, Jonathan, being a man who, who loves God, a man of faith, recognized faith in David, and his heart is knitted to him in love, 
And Jonathan, is, it seems, instantly discerns that this is the man who ought to be king after my dad. Jonathan is the one who is supposed to be king. This is such a remarkable man, this Jonathan, that when he sees a man better than himself, there is no hesitation in him to see that man elevated above him and to step aside. This is incredible. This is like having a co-worker who is younger than you, who started later than you, who is elevated above you, and you are happy to see it happen, and you want it to happen. This is supernatural. This is not the way flesh works. And it's because Jonathan is not functioning according to the flesh. So verse 3, Jonathan made a covenant with David, a lifelong commitment based upon what he sees early on. This wasn't being impulsive. This is being discerning. Jonathan saw something here, and he, and he weds himself by covenant to David. Not in marriage, don't mean to say that. We know, if you know anything about a homosexual community and what they say, that they would argue that this was a homosexual relationship. Just astounding to me. There is nothing impure about this relationship. These are two men walking with God who love each other selflessly because of their love for God. And so Jonathan forms a covenant with David, a lifelong commitment. In verse 4, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that, he was on, that was on him and gave it to David, meaning this robe that would have designated him the son of the king. He takes it off and puts it on David. Unbelievable. Doesn't ask Saul what he thinks about it. And Saul wouldn't have been happy with this. But Jonathan sees this is the man who ought to be king after my father. Not me. And he completely divests himself of everything that signifies that he is the king heir apparent. He strips himself of the kingly robe. He gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. He fully, selflessly identifies with this man and bestows upon him everything that would have distinguished Jonathan as, as being the, the king heir apparent that he was. Humility, selflessness, discernment. Because he's a man who walked with God. He is not threatened. There's no sense of competition with him. He truly can rejoice in the good of another. Supernatural. I'd like to be a Jonathan. Not just have Jonathans, but be a Jonathan. That's what the Lord calls us to. Really, the truest friend is not Jonathan, but it's the Lord Jesus. And it's amazing, the Lord Jesus, in his selfless love, sacrificial love for you and I, willing to lay down his life for us, says at the end of his life, no longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. Friends. The best friend we'll ever have is Jesus, who has humbled himself and come down from heaven and taken on humanity and given himself for us not regarding equality with God, a thing to be grasped. God's blessing David, favoring David. Even Saul sees the, 
that something unusual is going on with David, and so he attaches him to his army, and, and God is, is giving David favor as only God can do with, with all the nation. It says in verse 5 that David, so David went out wherever Saul sent him, and, and he prospered, and Saul sent him, set him over the men of war. And it was, this is the important thing, it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. No one would have been more loyal and faithful and committed to Saul than his personal servants. Many of those personal servants would have been Benjamites because they would have been the ones most loyal to the king being from the same tribe. So we're, we're being told that everybody was on board with David. And the reason was they saw no threat to the king in David. If the personal servants of Saul are committed to David, it's because they don't see that David is a threat to the king. And that says a lot about David. He was not there to usurp the king. Later on, David's son Absalom will, usurp, will seek to usurp the throne from David. And part of the reason that that causes so much pain to David is because he was never a usurper himself. But Saul becomes jealous. They come back to the city, and the women are singing, David has killed his tens of thousands and Saul his thousands. And Saul goes, who is this guy? Probably Saul is thinking back to when not so far in the past, Samuel, remember, said, God has taken the kingdom away from you and given it to a better man, a man after his own heart. And since that day, Saul has been on the lookout for that man. And now here's a man who is slaying a giant, and the women are singing, he's killed his tens of thousands, and the whole nation is supportive of him. And now Saul begins to wonder, is this the one that Samuel was telling me about? So Saul becomes angry, he's jealous, and he is suspicious. And it becomes the root of just further rebellion against God. The rebellion that began with the disobedience of not killing all the Amalekites and all that they owned, now is moving into more of a deep-seated rebellion against God, and it will eventually end up in just almost utter insanity because of his heart being so turned against God. In verse 10 of chapter 18, so now it came about on the next day after these women sang these things that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul and he raved in the midst of the house. He's losing his mind. Every time, and I think there are three of them, in this account where it says that an evil spirit comes upon Saul, it is immediately after a decision of rebellion that Saul has made, where he has rejected God, been disobedient to God, hardened his heart against God, and then an evil spirit from God comes upon him. We looked at this the first time. I appreciated the, the observation that F.B. Meyer made that God is not actually sending an evil spirit. God is not creating an evil spirit. We noted that. But the Hebrew language will often ascribe to God causality for what God is only permitting. That's just the nature of how the Hebrew language works. It's not as precise often as the, what the Greek is. So when we come to the New Testament, we are told very, very clearly that God is not the author of evil. He doesn't even tempt people. And so, but what we do know 
is that, there, that, that just as nature abhors a vacuum, so does the spiritual realm abhor a vacuum. Jesus says, when the house is swept clean, if that demon comes back and finds that there is nothing there, then seven more will come in to take its place. That there is not a, a, a state of being uninfluenced spiritually. We are either going to be influenced by the Spirit of God or we're going to be influenced by the demonic realm. There cannot be in a Switzerland state of neutrality when it comes to the spiritual realm. One or the other is having influence upon us and it is shaping our actions, our thoughts, and our decisions. And if we do not choose to let God be that influence by living in submission and obedience to Him, then we are handing ourselves over to demonic influence. I think that's the picture of what's going on here. Saul has rebelled against God, he has chosen against God, and in doing so, he has opened himself up to demonic influence. Influence that would not have happened otherwise. I read one person recently, and they said the barrier, the protection that is around us that God has put in place cannot be broken down by the demonic realm. It cannot be broken down from outside, but it can be broken down from inside. And we are on the inside of that protection. And the devil can't get through to us because God is defending us. But we can break down that wall, as it were, from the inside and allow him to have access to us. Not to possess us, not to inhabit us, but certainly to oppress us, to influence us, um, to, to control us even. I believe this is why Peter said to Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, why have you allowed Satan to fill your hearts? They had come under the control of the enemy as they resisted and opposed what God wanted to do in their lives. So an evil spirit comes upon him. He's he's losing um, uh, control of his mind. And he takes a spear and tries to, to pin David to the wall. Verse 11. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, and he had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David was continuing to prosper. And Saul was dreading him, verse 15. But all Israel and Judah loved him, verse 16. And so then Saul says, I got, if I can't kill him with a spear, then I'll do something else to kill him. I'll, have him. I'll give him one of my daughters and tell him to go out and kill a bunch of Philistines and maybe he'll die in battle. And the interesting thing, though, is here again, the nature of sin is, as, I, as I've said before, is that it, it, the very nature of sin is that it doesn't make sense. If the wages of sin is death, then why would we choose to sin? It doesn't make sense. But it can be totally insane, totally irrational, and yet you can still be thinking rational thoughts while being irrational. So here, this man is losing his mind. But he is thinking clearly about how to kill his enemy. And he's pretty shrewd with it. He knows that this evil spirit is coming upon him. And it's as though he says, if I throw a spear and pin him against the wall, I can blame it on insanity. Well, that doesn't work. So he's thinking, what else can I do? And so he says, well, if I can just put him into battles where he can't possibly win, then I can let the enemy kill him. He is thinking rationally. But he is thinking insane thoughts. I don't understand all this, but I believe it, 
this is the way that our minds work. We had um, a student a few years ago that had um, a, a psychological episode, a nervous breakdown, however you want to, want to label it. And it was very um, troublesome. He was clearly not in his right mind. And we had to get him um, professional help. And once he was thinking clearly again and um, uh, rational again, I asked him, are you aware of everything that you did during that period where you were out of your mind? And he says, I know exactly everything I did. And I would have would have thought he would have had no recollection of anything that was happening because he was so disassociated with reality. But he told me, even though he was living in the midst of what looked like insanity, he still had enough of his faculties to know exactly what he was doing. I believe that's what's being portrayed about Nebuchadnezzar when for seven years he was eating grass like a cow in the backyard think he knew what he was doing. And after seven years, he finally lifted his eyes to heaven and and called out to God. And I believe he could look back on those seven years and remember exactly what it was like to eat grass on his hands and knees like a cow. This is where Saul is going. Because it started with just simple disobedience to God, doing what he thought was better than what God thought. And he's losing his mind. But all the while able to function as king while losing his mind. Scary stuff. So it doesn't work to give him his older daughter, Merib. And David's not interested. But in verse 20, now, never know how to pronounce her name. I think it's pronounced like Michael without an emphasis on the E, but so I'll just call her Michael. Now, Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And when they told Saul, the thing was agreeable to him. And Saul thought, I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Now, he was thinking snare in terms of, I can tell him to go kill a hundred Philistines for a dowry, and then he'll die killing the Philistines. But actually, she's a snare in a different way than what, David, what, what, than what Saul intended, as we'll see. Therefore, Saul said, for a second time, you may be my, sec- my son-in-law today. And so then they start negotiating on what the dowry is going to be. And so David's going, is it a small thing to become the king's son-in-law? I don't have anything. And so Saul sends through messengers back to David. All the king is looking for, he's not looking for money. He knows you're a poor man. All he's looking for is is vengeance on his enemies. Go out and kill 100 Philistines. And David goes, hey, I can do that. And so he gets his guys with him and he says, let's go kill Philistines. And so instead of killing 100, he kills 200. And Saul goes, darn, I wasn't supposed to work that way. (laughs) And so verse 28 It says, I I I shouldn't skip verse 26. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Now, I think that's a bit curious. If you read this paragraph here carefully, 
It never says that David loved Michael. Michael loved David. And the reason that David wants to marry her, it's saying, is because it pleases him not to marry the woman that he loves. It pleases him to become the king's son-in-law. And it's going to say that twice. So then we come down to verse 28. So when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, not David loved him, loved her, but she loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so his name was highly esteemed. So it pleases David to be this king's son-in-law. That's why he marries this woman. He never asked God, never seeks the Lord. She loved him, and he loved the idea of becoming the king's son-in-law. Maybe because he figured if I'm the king's son-in-law, he'll quit trying to kill me. Because now I'm family. Wrong. Then we come to chapter 19. And it starts getting worse. So Jonathan te- Saul tells Jonathan and all of his servants to kill David. Put him to death. Jonathan, being the covenant friend that he is, says, Dad, what did this man do? He has done nothing to you. He has helped you. He has fought your battles. He is innocent. Don't do this. And Saul, for a brief moment, came to his senses. Verse 6, Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And he'll go right back on that vow. We're told that, again, verse 9, an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul. And again, verse 10, Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear. And so then, verse 11, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. And get this. And Michael took the household idol. David has a household idol. Isn't that interesting? And he let, she laid it on the bed, covered it up, dressed it up to make it look like David. And when the servants came to kill David, he said, he's sick. They went back and told Saul. Saul said, kill him in his bed. And they came back again into the bedroom and they saw, saw that it wasn't David at all. And then Michael lies in verse 17, the end of the verse. And Michael said to Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I put you to death? And David fled and escaped. And then the chapter ends with an interesting thing. David, not knowing where else to go, goes to Samuel, the guy who anointed him and made him king. And he's hiding out with Samuel. And Saul three times sends soldiers to kill David. And all three times, the Spirit of God comes upon those soldiers so that they begin to prophesy, and they have no will any longer to to attack and kill David. And finally, Saul himself goes. 
And the Spirit of God overpowers him so that he can't exercise his will either to kill David. And Saul will prophesy for 24 hours straight, all day and all night, lying in the dirt and, and prophesying. Now, prophesying here probably means he is, he is giving praise to God. And the point is, the Spirit of God is stronger than the Spirit of man. And God can so pour out His Spirit that man is not able to exert, to, to accomplish His will. Saul's will hasn't changed. He's not able to accomplish His will. David didn't need to have a sword to defend himself. David, David didn't need to be let down by, a, a, by the window by a rope. David didn't need to lie about being sick. David didn't need his wife to lie for him. If this is God's man and God has made him king, has anointed him to be the next king, then all he needs is the Spirit of God to protect him. None of this other stuff needed to happen. And now David's seeing that, then he goes to a man who doesn't even own a sword. And that man, by the power of the Spirit, is used by God to protect David, and David has to do nothing. He can sit comfortably in Samuel's house and be absolutely safe because of the Spirit of God is going to protect him. When we walk with God, we will create lifelong, loving, sacrificial friends. And we might create lifelong enemies. Those are easy to tell apart. The real danger comes for those that say they love us, but are not themselves walking with God. When the Black Plague swept across Europe in the 14th century, estimates are that between 75 million and 200 million people died. They said it wasn't until the 19th century that the world recovered the population that it lost. Isn't that amazing? Somewhere, estimates are as high as 40% of the world's population died during the Black Plague. Germs. Specifically, they think a flea that was transferred across Europe on rats. Giants, you can fight a giant. What do you do with the invisible? Germs. And we all know germs are often more deadly than giants are. David had just come off the battlefield and killing a giant. And, he, and that, total confidence in God. Dependence upon God. But then he marries a woman that he doesn't love because of who she is, the king's daughter, and who does not truly walk with God. I don't think this idol was David's. I think it was hers. These idols often were made of silver or gold, and they went with the woman when she got married. Remember, Rachel took the household idols 
when Jacob left Laban to go back to Canaan. And Laban's looking for his idols, remember? And Rachel's sitting on them and refuses to get up, says she can't. She stole the idols. They weren't Jacob's. She claimed them as her dowry from her dad. And I believe it's very likely that this idol is something that Michael has claimed as her own, as the wealth of her father that she's taken with her into this marriage. So it wasn't just about the idol, but it was about the money that it represented, the wealth that it represented. This is a woman whose heart is not captivated by God. And David didn't see the danger of entering into this relationship. There is a sense in which she is a much greater threat to him in this present condition that she's in than Saul was. David knows exactly what he's facing with Saul. And he has put himself in grave danger with this woman. Much later, when David's finally made king and he takes Michael back as his wife, and then David will be celebrating when the Ark of the Covenant is brought into Jerusalem and he's out there dancing. She says he's making a fool of himself. And she's embarrassed. She has no spiritual sensitivity. She's not aware of the values that David has, and he is simply selflessly rejoicing in the Lord. She's embarrassed because he's making a spectacle of himself in public. And she rebukes him and mocks him. And David goes, well, that's the last time I spend any time with you. You're never going to have any babies from me. And he just ignored her from that point on. It's been observed that every area of David's life, he sought God, except one, women. There, was never, there is no record anywhere in the life of David where before he took another wife, he said, God, what's your will for me? Never. He just did it because it seemed good. This was... David's Achilles heel. This is the area where David was never surrendered to God. And this is the place of his greatest danger. I would just finish up with making a few lessons just to reiterate some things that I've already been saying. Number one, disobedience, departure of God's enabling... Disobedience to God can lead to the departure of God's enabling, as it did with Saul. And then, because we're not functioning under the enabling of God, we can only be functioning according to the flesh. And everything begins to fall apart. The problem's not other people. Saul's problem was not David. Saul's problem was he has lost the enabling of God because he has walked in disobedience without repenting of it. So Saul is is passive, inactive toward Goliath. He's suspicious of David. He's filled with jealousy. He's filled with fear, irrational rage. He is obsessed with David. He is obsessed with trying to preserve and maintain his own throne, to protect himself, to do anything and everything possible to keep from losing. The absolute opposite of Jesus, of even John the Baptist, who said, he must increase, but I must decrease. And of Jonathan, Saul's son, 
who is so willing to divest himself of everything and let another man become king. That disobedience led to insanity, irrationality, and the destruction of everything that Saul loved. A second lesson is walking with God in faith and obedience brings great victory, <coughs> creates great friends, and brings great enemies. It is God who gives favor. It is God who advances and promotes. It is God who brings friends. It is God who uses enemies. And it is God who protects. All of this is God is working, just beginning to work to equip and prepare David to be king. It's going to get much worse after this. Ten years, David's going to be hunted like an animal through the wilderness. Saul trying to kill him. And all the while, God is working in David, preparing him to be the right kind of king. Another lesson, people will love you and help you and help to protect you may be your greatest danger, the Michaels. In them may be the germs of destruction for us. This woman was a snare to David in ways that Saul could not have predicted. She was compromising, lying, and she will later rebuke and mock him for his joy in the Lord. David didn't even see it coming. The kind of leadership that God is after in each of our lives, I read just recently in a book on leadership that I've started this week, is one of sacrifice, humility, and suffering. And we see God bringing this into David's life. It was certainly in Jonathan's life. When Saul went to himself, personally killed David, when he was under the protection of Samuel, he prophesied. The lesson there is, when people prophesy, when people have spiritual experiences, it may only mean that God's spirit is greater than man's or the devil's. It does not necessarily mean that person is walking with God. Many people have spiritual experiences. We shouldn't make too much of them. Friends that are created because of spiritual oneness, because of spiritual affinity, transcend everything else in life. That's the kind of friend you want, and you can't make it happen. If I could undo any one thing in, in some people that I've come across, it is the, the craving, lust to be loved, to have a friend, to have a spouse. And somehow if I could just unplug that in them and just say, walk with God, love God, and God will bring to you those people that will love you to the core of your being in ways that you could have never imagined without you seeking it. If we would just believe that. God is the one who creates true, sacrificial, love you to the end through thick and thin kinds of friends, whether it's a spouse or whether it's just simply a friend. God is the one who does that, and he does it through the creation of spiritual oneness. The flesh wars against the spirit. We need to accept that. 
humbly. There are times when people are going to hate us and not even be able to explain why they hate us. There is comfort in saying there is no explanation. It is the spirit warring against the flesh. But don't become self-righteous in it. We should accept it while at the same time hating it and praying for reconciliation. But when Paul's relationship with the Corinthians was not as it should be, because they were believing things about him that were false, there was really nothing Paul could do to make it right. All he could do was just lay it on the table, this is the truth. But he could not reconcile those people to himself. And ultimately, he understood it wasn't about him and them. It was about their relationship with God. So in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, We beg you, speaking to Christians, we beg you, be reconciled to God. That's where the real issue is. Our responsibility is to keep our heart open toward even our enemies. But we do not have the power to make enemies our friends. Especially when the root cause is spiritual. All we can do is go before God and say, God, turn this enemy to yourself. I beg you, God, work in their hearts. I beg them that they would be reconciled to you. And as God does that spiritual work, then we can have the joy of witnessing a miracle. God doing what we couldn't do. Transforming the miracle, the the enemy, into a friend. I've seen it happen. And it's awesome. It's It's like seeing the dead raised. To see an enemy become a friend. And it only happens because of what God did. Not every bad relationship can be fixed by us. The only hope is for God to intervene. And sometimes, many times, it doesn't happen. And we have to just humbly before God say, God, use this in my life as you would choose to bring dependency, humility, and even joy despite the circumstances. But in it all, the real danger in life is not those who are outwardly hating of us, who are open enemies of us. The real danger is from those who claim to love us but don't really walk with God. And this, again, is where we need to live surrendered lives and allow God to give us the discernment that only he can give. And I will close us in prayer. Lord Jesus, I do thank you for your work in life. It is not just people sitting around thinking about heaven, but it's the real stuff of relationships. Some are good, beautiful, impactful, and life-changing. And others are deeply distressful. Where we can be hurt and wounded to the core of our being. 
and others that seem to be harmless, God, can sometimes create great harm. Lord Jesus, we are not adequate for these things. We want to walk before you, God, with Jesus as being our first and foremost friend, preeminent in all of our affections. And that you would, God, give us light and discernment as we walk through this life. That we would not be harsh and critical. That we would not be self-protective. And we'd understand that we can live lives that are open and transparent and vulnerable because you are our protection. And that we don't have to go through life trying to defend ourselves or to save ourselves. Jesus is the Savior. I pray that when our hearts would not become suspicious and jealous and evil like Saul, that, Lord, that we would be Jonathan's willing to quickly divest ourselves of every right and privilege for the sake of seeing another elevated, promoted above us. That we would love to the end and love faithfully because you have so loved us. Thank you, God, for being the loving Father that you are and Jesus for being the friend that you are. In Christ's name, amen.